Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here tonight. Uh, I'll tell you, though, when I first became a lawyer and I, I told my mom I was being admitted to the bar, I don't think this is exactly what she had in mind. Uh, but after the events of uh, 2020, it's great to be able to speak live and in person to a real live audience. Uh, if any of you are, however, nostalgic for the past year, feel free to pretend this is a Zoom call. So just mute yourselves while I'm speaking and raise your little hand icon if you wanna, if you wanna have a question. Uh, before we get to the subject of this talk tonight, let me offer a sincere thank you uh, myself for hosting me to the University of Auckland, the organizers of Raising the Bar, and the owners and staff of the uh, very nice uh, Little Easy Pub. Uh, welcome also, and thanks to all of you for coming tonight. Uh, in particular, a special shout out to my, uh, my good friend Rosie, who's sitting over there, longtime nanny to my eight-year-old son Henry, who is home with my wife, I hope, and to my daughter, <laughs> And to my daughter, Samantha, sitting next to her. Uh, thank you, honey. Samantha recently turned 18. She just began studying classics and history at Auckland Uni, and she assures me this is only her second time in a bar. <laughs> a special welcome also to other friends, coworkers, and acquaintances uh, from the law school, and finally to my students from the Auckland Law School, many of whom I see here tonight. Uh, you guys are clearly not getting enough work from me if you've got time to hang out in a bar in Ponsonby on Tuesday, so you can all expect more assigned readings as of tomorrow. During my talk, I'm going to be posing various queries and matters for everyone to think about, and I hope that'll focus the discussion to come afterwards. And I also promise that even though I'm a law professor, it's not going to be a technical legal lecture. Um, it's pitched more at the level of a law and policy debate using uh, various real-world examples. So the goal is not so much to uh, teach law and legal concepts, but you'll learn a little bit on the way, but to raise points and matters that underlie the particular area of law that I'm gonna be speaking about tonight. Um, so that's the way it's gonna work, and I'm also pretty certain that as we all drink more, I'm gonna start to sound better to both of us. <laughs> so I reckon I've got that going for me. So the genesis of this talk, dude, you're a cop, um, comes from a 70-page article I wrote about three relatively recent police undercover cases considered by the New Zealand Supreme Court, oddly enough, within the span of a few years of each other. Uh, the three cases were Wilson and the Queen, the Queen and Kumar, and the Queen and Wichman. Now, in each case, the New Zealand police ran a successful undercover scenario operation, which is what they're referred to, um, against the target of an ongoing criminal investigation in order to generate evidence against them. And in each case, the defendant challenged the police use of the undercover scenario operation, claiming that the evidence garnered by the ruse was obtained improperly. And when we say that evidence is obtained improperly, we mean in general evidence was either secured by police unfairly, illegally, in violation of the New Zealand Bill of Rights, and or unreliably. So that was the claim. And it was the legal arguments presented in those cases and their various outcomes that got me thinking about two main issues. Um, first, what are or should be the legal and policy limits on deceptive policing in New Zealand um, and on the use of undercover police tactics and scenario operations to gather evidence against criminal suspects? That was the first question. And the second was, is how willing should the law be to allow evidence to be used in criminal prosecutions if it was secured by undercover or deceptive police tactics? 
And that was the subject of my article, and those are the topics for tonight's talk. Now, um, as a result of movies, TV shows, books about policing, I'm sure that all of you have some idea in your heads regarding what undercover police tactics to gather evidence look like, right? Deceptive policing is a, a real staple of the media, uh, fictional and non-fictional, and it's been around for a long time. Uh, it can be very ingenious and highly effective, and the kinds of stings that police can dream up are limited only by the extent of their resources um, and their imagination. Uh, some are comparatively simple. Uh, others involve the more inventive kinds of scenarios seen in the Witchman, Kumar, and Wilson appeals. Um, let me give you an example of one when I was a prosecutor in the New York County District Attorney's Office. Um, one easy police standby that they used all the time was to photocopy American $20 bills on an ordinary Xerox machine. And they would then give those bills to undercover officers posing as drug buyers in New York's Greenwich Village. Okay, there were certain places where everybody knew they could go to buy pot. And then they would do the transaction, and then the uniform cops would come in and bust the dealers. The dealers would protest their innocence, but it was really hard for them to explain why their wallets <laughs> contained the $20 bills with the same serial numbers as the ones photocopied by the police, right? Simple, but it worked every single time. Simple, but it worked every time. Um, another one of my personal favorites, and a little more complicated, was an actual FBI sting operation against an organized crime family in the United States, uh, whose leader lived in a, a huge mansion in upstate New York, and used the house for criminal meetings and to conduct the organization's criminal business. Now, one day, the FBI had the cable TV company that provided service to the numerous TVs in the house simply turn the cable off at the switch. They just turned it off. And of course, the residents of the house, the mobsters, called the company to complain. And so the FBI showed up in a repair van with the cable company markings and all the FBI guys dressed as the cable guys. They then went into the house and after inspecting the cabling in the mansion, they told the occupants, look, it's all faulty, it's gonna need to be replaced, but you're lucky because we can do the work for you. And the mobsters wanted their TVs to work so they agreed to let the FBI agents be in the house for a few days, rewiring all the cabling for the numerous rooms of the televisions in the residence. And of course, what the FBI was really doing was wiring the whole place for sound and surveillance, which they did successfully in almost every room of the house. And when they were done, the FBI simply called the cable company before they left, had them flip the switch back on to turn all the TVs back on. And the mobsters thought these guys were great when they told them that everything was fixed and their TVs would all work now. In fact, they never suspected a thing, even though the operation was carried out right under their noses. Uh, in fact, as the story goes, they were so grateful to have their TVs working again that they even tipped the FBI agents. They, they gave them all a big tip before they left, which the uh, agency had to donate to the government. Um, so they were pretty grateful, but they were a lot less grateful <laughs> months later when they were all arrested on the basis of those FBI recordings made of the conversations in the house. And the moral of the story is, is uh, when the mobsters you know, sign up for their basic cable package, they probably shouldn't have chosen the surveillance channel. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would have probably gone with Netflix, really. Now, now, those scams, absolutely true, I'm not making this up, those scams are all perfectly legal under US law. 
and they would probably strike us all as pretty stylish policing, right? Pretty cool and pretty stylish policing. And to one extent or another, I think they'd probably be okay in New Zealand as well. But let me now pose a hypothetical for all of you about a, a different type of scenario operation, and one which might actually be very close to your own experience at this very moment. All right? Suppose that drink that you've all got in your hands right now was tonight purchased for you, and maybe it was, by some very attractive person, right? Someone who made your acquaintance. Yeah, I see some nods. I see some nods in the audience. Someone who made your acquaintance for the first time in this pub and showed some interest in you. Suppose also that at some point when you weren't paying much attention and the moment was right, that very same attractive individual surreptitiously slipped that glass into a Ziploc envelope and then excused themselves for the evening, hinting coyly that you might meet again. Well, you might go home tonight thinking, you know, despite that idiot law professor talk, this turned out to be a pretty good evening. And you'd be thinking that up until the point a few days later when the police knocked on your door and arrested you as a result of that drink because of that drink. Why? Because, of course, that attractive person who chatted you up in this bar was an undercover police officer sent to acquire your DNA on the sly by posing as someone who was actually interested in you. Except, as it turns out, they were really less interested in you and more interested in your discarded genetic material, a police scenario operation that you unwittingly cooperated in by helpfully leaving your saliva on the glass for them to collect. So why are you under arrest? Well, because the DNA profile extracted from your saliva matched a DNA sample previously stored on a police DNA database that was collected from the recent Beehive riot. You know that one? All those stoned insurrectionists inspired by their right-wing American counterparts in January that stormed Parliament in order to overturn the unreasonable results of the cannabis referendum? You were there, you know you were there, <laughs> hence your arrest. Surprise, that turned out to be a pretty expensive drink. Now from your perspective, right, you're gonna feel pretty cheesed off, pretty hard done by, you're gonna be grumbling about your rights and about how police shouldn't be able to deceive people like that. On the other hand, from the police perspective, high fives all around, kudos for pulling off such a good scam and laughing at how dumb you were to fall for it. Now, what about my perspective as a law professor? You know, the one that really matters. <laughs> to me, the real issue with that um, actually not so hypothetical uh, scenario is whether the law should permit police to engage in that kind of undercover operation. Should the law permit it in order to get evidence of criminal behavior? And what are the pro-con and legal policy issues involved? So. Let me ask all of you, by a show of hands, and I'll repeat the statistics, without turning you into lawyers, just applying your own sense of right or wrong, justice or injustice, or whatever else you've gleaned from all of those Netflix crime documentaries, how many of you think that what the cops did in my hypothetical should be allowed under New Zealand law? Raise your hand. That's about maybe 20%. How many of you think the law should not permit the cops to do what they did in my hypothetical? That's probably about 30 or 40%. And the rest of you? 
Uh, the rest of you, I see you're all frantically wiping down your glasses. <laughs> Trying to sneak off, that's a good move, okay? That's a smart move. All right, which group is right? Now the answer, as with many legal issues, especially the good ones, is that everyone's right and everyone's wrong. Why? Because like most interesting questions of law and policy, there actually is no right or wrong answer to my question. Okay, you didn't hear this from me, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret regarding the law of police investigations. You ready? It's all made up. All of it. The police can only do or not do exactly what we, as a society, allow them to do or not do. And what we permit or not when it comes to police investigations of crime cannot objectively be determined as right or wrong. Instead, our choice of acceptable or unacceptable police investigative conduct exists within a spectrum of value propositions. Principles understood by law professors like myself as balancing the poles of due process on the one hand and crime control on the other. So what does that mean? It means that all laws forbidding or permitting various kinds of police investigative tactics can be located on a line with crime control values on one end and due process values on the other. Now, due process values, as the name suggests, revolve around safeguarding the individual rights and privacy of citizens in their interactions with the police, protecting the innocent, ensuring that police follow clear and appropriate investigative rules, and creating justified limits on the power of police to investigate unlawful behavior. That's the due process side. Crime control values, by contrast, focus on making sure that guilty offenders are detected and prosecuted, giving the police freedom of action to investigate crime and not putting too many obstacles in the way of effective policing. So, in the end, how you feel about whether the law should permit the bar glass police ruse or any other type of undercover scenario operation depends on two things. First, the extent to which your own sense of criminal justice and appropriate policing is oriented more towards due process or crime control. And second, how you balance the various values and interests involved at both ends of the crime control due process spectrum to come up with an investigative rule. And if you just happen to be a judge, member of parliament or anyone else in a position to do so, you can then take your balancing of those values and interests and translate them into new legal rules or interpretations of existing legal rules in order to green light any particular undercover police operation or not. And if you happen to be a law professor like me, you can then write a 70-page article explaining why everybody else is wrong <laughs> and how they all would have been better off listening to me in the first place. At which point you finally end up in a pub in Ponsonby on a Tuesday night, making your case in front of a smart crowd with a drink in your hand. Now, leaving aside your own views on the matter, and I encourage you to consider and perhaps talk about during our Q&A, you might be inter interested to know that in the United States, at least, courts have squarely held, squarely held that there is absolutely no problem with this kind of surreptitious police collection of DNA evidence. American judges have stated that once a suspect abandons his DNA on a bar glass, 
discarded tissue or the like, they have no further privacy or possessory interest in it, and so no rights to protect. Hence, its collection is just fair game for the police or anyone else. And the crime control due process balance clearly coming down on the side of law enforcement in these sorts of cases under American law. In fact, based on this very abandonment theory, just last month, detectives in the United States state of Colorado recently reinvigorated a 35-year-old murder case, cold case. They did this by getting on the same airplane as the suspect, sitting a few rows behind him and intercepting a discarded water bottle that he drank from before the flight attendant on Spirit Airlines could throw it in the bin. DNA evidence obtained from that bottle matched DNA taken from a ski mask worn by the killer and left at the crime scene and preserved all these years later in a police lab. And that suspect is now facing prosecution for the 1985 murder in a Colorado court as a result of that very simple sting. So what about the propriety of the bar glass sting here in New Zealand? Um, the legal and policy status of this particular type of police scenario operation is currently unsettled in New Zealand law, and it's never been squarely tested before a New Zealand court, and that's most likely because, as far as I know, it hasn't been used by the police as a way of obtaining a criminal suspect's DNA, although that may change after tonight. Um, you, you might be interested to know, however, that there is, in fact, no specific body of New Zealand law at present that governs the legality or not of DNA evidence obtained by police in this matter. Um, in fact, a recent and comprehensive report on the use and collection of DNA in New Zealand by the New Zealand Law Commission, and that is a standing government body engaged in ongoing research for law reform purposes. Um, in their report, they noted the uncertain state of New Zealand law regarding this kind of indirect, non-consensual gathering of DNA evidence from a criminal suspect. And they disagreed strongly with the American abandonment approach. And the Law Commission suggested in their report that this indirect, non-consensual collection of DNA samples implicates significant rights, uh, rights based in principles of individual privacy, tikanga, and the control over one's own bodily integrity. But they also acknowledge that the obtaining of DNA evidence is a critical tool of criminal investigation. So in order to head off New Zealand courts going the way of those in the United States, the Law Commission has now recommended new targeted legislation to Parliament that would permit police to engage in the indirect, non-consensual collection of DNA evidence, but only pursuant to a search warrant issued by a neutral judge and based on a clear showing of sufficient investigative necessity. Now that's fair enough, um, in my view. It's a good example of how the Law Commission, at least, balances crime control and due process values when it comes to this kind of police hunt for DNA proof. But whether such legislation would permit a judge to authorize the kind of scenario operation that we've been talking about, either explicitly or implicitly, that's still an open question that has to be debated and discussed. Um, the Law Commission suggested that such a warrant could be used in circumstances where in order not to prejudice an ongoing investigation, police needed to obtain DNA evidence surreptitiously. But they didn't actually address directly what kinds of undercover scenario operations police should or shouldn't be able to mount to get the DNA that they need. And so that's still something for Parliament and, and or the courts to decide, and so I would watch this space. All right, 
Now, while you're considering your views on the bar glass scenario, let me turn to, finally in this talk to the three New Zealand Supreme Court cases that were the focus of my article on undercover policing, the Wichman, Kumar, and Wilson decisions that are really the subject of tonight's talk. What were those cases about? How did they come out? What lessons can they teach us to inform debates concerning the appropriate scope of deceptive policing in New Zealand today? Um, the first case, Queen and Kumar, uh, the Supreme Court dealt with a drug-related murder um, in which the suspect under questioning, after being arrested, exercised his rights to silence and counsel. Now, those are rights afforded to all persons arrested or detained by the police in New Zealand or in respect of whom police have sufficient evidence to charge, and they are rights that come from the New Zealand Bill of Rights and some associated legal rules. And having invoked those rights, police had no choice at that point but to wrap up the questioning of Kumar and put him in a police cell pending his first appearance in court in the morning where he was going to meet his lawyer and argue for bail. But also in that police cell overnight were Kumar's two cellmates. And those two cellmates struck up a conversation with Kumar, gained his trust, and eventually elicited incriminating admissions from him regarding the killing. Um, in fact, in order to make sure that Kumar and his new cellmates got together in the cell, police splashed some water in one corner of the cell, and uh, one cellmate told Kumar not to sit there because someone had just peed, so they had to all gather more closely together in the other corner of the cell to uh, encourage conversation. Um, that's absolutely true. Uh, the cellmates weren't looking out for Kumar's welfare, of course, and they didn't care you know, about the pee. Um, they were undercover cops wired for sound. And having secured his admission surreptitiously on tape, the police then sought to use that evidence against Kumar at his trial. But he objected on the grounds that his rights to silence and counsel had been unlawfully undermined by the cellmate scenario ruse, and therefore that his confession had been improperly obtained, and that was his claim in the Kumar case. The second Supreme Court case, Queen and Wichman, involved a defendant suspected of the shaking death of his infant daughter. Um, during his formal police interviews with a lawyer present and after having been advised of his right to silence and deciding to make a statement, Wichman denied involvement in the crime, told police he had nothing more to say. The case then went cold for a number of years for lack of evidence. But in order to get more proof against Wichman, police eventually turned to the Mr. Big scenario, which was a ruse originally invented and used by Canadian uh, law enforcement. And as part of this undercover police operation, Wichman was led to believe that he was eligible to become part of a criminal gang that would bring him money and various other opportunities. But in order to become a full-fledged member of the gang, he was told that he needed to confess any past crimes to the head of a gang, referred to as Mr. Big. And he had to do this in order to demonstrate loyalty, and so that Mr. Big could allegedly sort out those outstanding criminal matters with corrupt cops that they had access to. Well, of course, Mr. Big, um, whose name in the scenario operation, oddly enough, was Scott, was actually an undercover police officer, as was every other member of the supposed gang. And Wichman subsequently confessed to the shaking death of his child during his Mr. Big interview, all of which was duly recorded on tape by hidden police microphones and led to his arrest for homicide and eventual guilty plea. But prior to pleading guilty, Wichman argued that his confession had been secured by police in a manner that rendered it unreliable and similar to the claim raised in Kumar, Likewise, that the admissions had been obtained in breach of his silence and lawyer rights, and that was Wichman. 
The final case, Wilson and the Queen, involved a nine-month police investigation into the criminal activities of the Red Devils motorcycle gang in the Nelson area. Now, in order to infiltrate an undercover police officer who was referred to as MW um, into the gang and to burnish his credentials as a bona fide felon, um, the police used a fake search warrant to stage a fake raid on a storage unit allegedly rented by MW. They then faked the recovery of drug manufacturing equipment from the unit, faked MW's arrest, and finally faked his prosecution for drug offending. And this included various fake appearances in the district court, albeit with the ostensible approval of the chief district court judge at the time, but without the knowledge of other court staff or the lawyers involved in the case. And while this scenario operation garnered good evidence against the gang, the defendant argued that the bogus arrest and court proceedings were an abuse of criminal justice and court processes, and that was police misconduct requiring the evidence obtained in the Serenero operation not to be permitted to be used at trial, and in fact, he argued that it mandated that the entire prosecution be stopped. All right, those are the three cases. How did each of those Supreme Court appeals come out? Um, let me keep things simple not get too much into the legal weeds, and let you start thinking about how they came out and how they should have come out. In the Wilson case, the Supreme Court agreed with the defendant that the police staging of the fake raid, arrest, and prosecution of MW was, quote, serious misconduct that threatened the integrity of criminal justice processes and impugned the independence of the judiciary. Upholding the decision of the lower courts to forbid the evidence obtained, obtained during the scenario operation from being used at uh, the defendant's trial, the justices also held that while police had not acted in bad faith, the case against the defendant should be dismissed. So the evidence was thrown out and the case dropped. In Kumar, the second case, the Supreme Court likewise agreed with the defendant that the false cellmate scenario was improper and that the defendant's surreptitiously recorded confession had been unlawfully obtained. The court noted that Kumar had lawfully exercised his rights to silence and counsel and made it clear to police that he wouldn't be answering their questions. And since that choice needed to be honored while Kumar was still under arrest and detained in a police cell, the active eliciting of statements from him by undercover police officers was effectively a secret de facto interrogation in significant violation of those rights. And the court also held that as a result of this police misconduct, the statements recorded by the undercover officers could not be used as evidence at Kumar's murder trial. Now the result would have been different, the court stated, had the undercovers not consciously sought to elicit incriminating admissions from Kumar, but it simply acted opportunistically and more like passive listening posts for whatever Kumar happened or wanted to say while being held overnight in the police cell. So that's how Kumar came out. Finally, and by contrast with Kumar and Wilson, in Wichman, a majority of the Supreme Court held that Wichman's confession obtained in the Mr. Big scenario was admissible at his trial for homicide. Uh, the court found that the confession was reliable and it was corroborated by the other physical evidence in the case. The majority also held that the rights to counsel and silence applicable to persons arrested or detained or in respect of whom police have enough evidence to charge, did not apply to Wichman. Why was that? Because as set out in the Bill of Rights and Associated Laws, those rights were only triggered when criminal suspects were undergoing overt 
face-to-face -face interrogation by the police. In other words, the rights were designed to dispel the inherent coercion to speak created by a police-dominated atmosphere of formal interrogation. They didn't apply in an undercover situation where Richmond freely volunteered statements to persons he didn't actually know were cops. The court also found that Richmond's statements had not been obtained in any otherwise unfair, threatening, or coercive manner. Since the Mr. Big scenario that Richmond was subjected to, while a complex operation, was a relatively vanilla, and that's the court's words, version of this well-recognized Canadian police sting. So that's how Richmond came out, evidence okay. Now, what do we think of the outcomes of these cases? And how can they inform debate about the appropriate limits of undercover policing in New Zealand now and in the future? Um, I'd like you to ponder your own opinions, and maybe we can talk about it in the Q&A, but let me conclude the talk now by briefly giving you my own views, both as regards each case in particular, uh, how they came out, what they tell us about undercover policing, where it is and should be going. I'll talk about each case in particular, but let me start with four broader overall thoughts. First, what do all these cases have in common? Um, what they have in common is inserting undercover officers in close proximity with a criminal suspect, linking police operatives and suspects into a shared and ongoing narrative constructed by the police and gaining the suspect's confidence in order to secure admissions of criminal offending or other evidence thereof. And described in this fashion, the very nature of such undercover tactics raises the issue of whether there should be some legal and policy-grounded limits on the ability of police to conduct these kinds of operations. I mean, scenario stings can be highly effective for investigating crime, but there could easily be justified limits on their use based in fundamental notions of fairness, the acceptable scope of deception, and societal notions regarding the fair treatment of criminal suspects. Should police be permitted to construct full-blown realities designed to play on the needs and vulnerabilities of particular individuals? And should there be controls on the scope and extensiveness of such scenarios, the kinds of offenses for and the circumstances in which they can be employed, the types of persons they can be employed against, the methods of deception and persuasion used, and the incentives given to suspects by undercover police to offer up evidence of criminal offending? all limits to think about. In fact, as regards those last two particular points, um, you could also ask the question, how do we ensure that scenario operations actually generate cogent, documented, and reliable evidence of criminal offending? Um, for example, there's been quite a bit of overseas research that has flagged significant potential issues with the reliability of confessions obtained from suspects by police using the Mr. Big technique. Why is that? Well, it's because the suspect knows they'll only be able to become a full-fledged member of the gang if they confess to past criminal activity. And so there's an incentive for the suspects to tell Mr. Big what he or she wants to hear, even if it may not be completely accurate or true because they want to get into the gang. Now, a majority of the Supreme Court in Richmond ruled that the statements made in his Mr. Big interview were reliable enough to be admitted at trial, but they never really did a deep dive on the risks of false confession involved in this particular type of scenario and how those risks can or should be managed and assessed when the Mr. Big Roos is employed. Second overall point, 
Um, you might be interested to know that um, in general, and by contrast with many other types of traditional police investigations, there is no specific and targeted New Zealand legislation that either authorizes or forbids police from engaging in these kinds of undercover scenario operations and not the ones demonstrated in Wilson, Kumar, or Richmond. And so what that means is that New Zealand judges are required to adjudicate the propriety of such operations and the admissibility of the evidence they generate on a case-by-case -case basis and often applying law not specifically fit for purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that the scenarios are illegal or inappropriate. It just means that we as, as a society have not yet had a conscious think about the suitable crime control due process balance regarding the various individual rights and law enforcement interests involved. And as a result of that, in my article on these cases, I suggested that targeted legislation to deal with undercover police operations and the evidence they produce would be appropriate for parliament to consider. And I also suggested that such operations, like many other kinds of police investigations, might be amenable to judicial preclearance through the issuing of a scenario warrant, like a search warrant, based on clear standards set out in codified law and clear requirements of investigative necessity. Um, the New Zealand Law Commission that I mentioned earlier has floated similar ideas. So again, watch this space and see where we might go from here. Third point. Um, the Wichman, Kumar, and Wilson cases also raise the issue of where the locus of control should be when it comes to assessing the lawfulness and propriety of the use of police undercover stings. Now, at present, the decision to use scenario operations or any other kind of deceptive policing is largely in the hands of the police, based on their own internal guidelines, operational exigencies, and the reading of the law, um, which may not always be correct. Um, but as demonstrated by these three Supreme Court cases, a second locus of control is provided by courts, uh, which when criminal defendants challenge the propriety of the scenarios used for investigative purposes, rule on the admissibility at trial of evidence obtained by the police in those scenarios, or on the legal appropriateness of even continuing a prosecution based on a scenario ruse. But as previously noted, this is done on a case-by-case -case basis, and by applying law not necessarily designed to deal with the self-conscious balancing of rights, interests, and issues generated by various kinds of police undercover activities. So I'd like to see more clear lines of authority accompanied by greater transparency um, regarding how the official decision to use scenario operation gets made and a better delineation of the respective roles of parliament, the courts, and the police, both in controlling the use of scenario schemes and dealing with the admissibility in criminal trials of the evidence that they produce. And again, that's the kind of discussion <clears throat> that can be had as part of a move towards targeted legislation dealing with deceptive policing overall. Uh, fourth and lastly, Wilson, Kumar, and Wichman raise the issue of the status of the protection of rights, of individual rights, in undercover police scenario operations, meaning rights-based issues that arise from the subversion of the normal, visible processes of criminal investigation and prosecution. Each case asks the question of whether police should lawfully be allowed to do covertly what they could not lawfully do overtly. Um, 
In Kumar and Richmond, for example, police undertook a de facto surreptitious interrogation of criminal suspects who had already made clear to detectives that they wanted to deal with authorities through their lawyer and had no further statements to make. But almost by definition, those otherwise important rights cannot be observed or respected when undercover police operations are involved. And we need to think about that. All right, finally. What about the Wichman, Kumar, and Wilson cases themselves? What do I think of those individually? Um, as a matter of current New Zealand law, I think each of those cases was probably decided correctly. But it doesn't mean that I think the law itself is right. Um, and it doesn't decide what all of you think about each case or what the law in this particular area of policing should be. In Kumar, for example, um, I really fail to see why it's okay to have an undercover police cellmate gather evidence as a passive listening post, but not okay if they became a more active agent of conversational eliciting with the targeted suspect. I mean, leaving aside how you even possibly draw that line between passive listening and conversational uh, elicitation, um, it seems to me the real issue is the propriety of putting an undercover officer in Kumar's cell in the first place. Huh? and taking advantage of the fact that the suspect, who has otherwise asserted their rights to silence and counsel, doesn't know that he's actually speaking to the police. And the same issue arises with Wichman, who during his Mr. Big interview was likewise being actively questioned by detectives about his child's homicide, although without him actually knowing that it was taking place. Do you think that's fair? Um, as to Wilson, by contrast, I actually have always thought the Supreme Court was being a little bit precious regarding their decision um, in that case. I mean, after all, if police want to be able to infiltrate gangs with undercover officers, they need to give those operatives a convincing backstory. Um, and what better or even necessary way of doing that than by making them look like real crims? And real crims get arrested and get brought before a judge. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I never really bought the Supreme Court's view that while fake, the use of criminal justice processes in this way somehow undermine the integrity of those processes. Uh, to the contrary, the Wilson scenario didn't interfere at all, as far as I could tell, with the actual functioning of the district court, and nor did it transgress the rights of any persons actually facing arrest and prosecution for an actual criminal offense. And as I wrote in my article, um, at the very least, the Supreme Court in Wilson should have done a better job of explaining why to support an otherwise lawful and extensive undercover investigation into serious criminal offending, the reasonably limited and small-scale stage managing of court procedures by police should have been so roundly condemned. I don't think it should have been. All right, wrapping it up, where does this all leave us? Um, I put it to you that it leaves us pretty much where we started. Uh, understanding that there are no objectively correct ways to assess the propriety of police investigative practices and that the choices we make as a society will ultimately tell police what they can and can't do to investigate crime. And this is particularly true of undercover scenario policing, which raises significant issues about the appropriate balance between crime control and due process and the competing norms and interests that those two poles represent. But as I concluded in my article, the true lesson of Wilson, Kumar, and Wichman is that we need to now make clear, make manifest, in a novel and coordinated body of guidelines and rules, the value judgments underlying our collective appraisal of these effective but controversial crime-fighting schemes. So my call here tonight 
as I likewise concluded at the end of my research, is for a new and comprehensive platform of legal regulation from which to authorize, manage, supervise, and adjudicate undercover police scenario operations and their evidential fruits. Let's have an open and honest debate about the limits of deceptive policing, and let's see if any of our lawmakers takes uh, me up on that idea. Thank you uh, for being such a very kind um, and attentive audience. I really enjoyed being here. I hope you have too. Uh, we'll have some time for questions and discussions now. Otherwise, I'll see you in court. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, thanks, Scott. Sure. Quick question. A really popular media trope is that if you ask a cop if they're a cop, they have to say yes, you know. That's absolutely is, not true. Is that true. a true thing? No. Oh, thank As you. As every one of these cases shows, it is absolutely not true. You know, usually undercovers, when they ask, get asked a question like that, they go, dude, why? Are you a cop? There's all sorts of little tricks. You know, why? Do I look like a cop? Or, you know, would a cop do this? Right? So there's all sorts of ways of dealing with that. But the answer is absolutely no. They do not have to tell you they're a cop. Absolutely not. Um, are there legal consequences if police are involved in sexual intimacy, for example, with suspects or perhaps take part in crime because of, have to, because otherwise they'd blow their cover? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the, for, so for example, in the FBI field manual of undercover operations, they have specific things police can and can't do, and that's the sort of things that they couldn't do. Um, so there are limits on what police can do. Now, New Zealand police will have their own limits as well in internal guidelines that may not necessarily be made public. But if any of that kind of misconduct was identified, um, it could be dealt with through internal police disciplinary procedures, disciplining or firing or suspension of the officers involved. But it would ground the claim for one of these can't use the evidence or dismiss the case for police misconduct. So there are these broad-based doctrines that say if police engage in inappropriate, illegal, or unfair activity, or anything that offends the kind of the sense of the court, they can dismiss cases for what they call abusive process, or they can throw the evidence out if it violated some kind of New Zealand law. So it could lead to evidential exclusion or the dumping of a case, or probably more likely disciplinary action you know, against, against the police. Certainly there, there have been you know, some, some note of those kind of cases. Um, in New Zealand in the past. Just wanted to ask, you pointed out in the US some stuff is okay, yeah. in New Zealand some stuff isn't okay. Yep. Pros and cons either side, which uh, country you think is doing it better? I mean, that's a, it, I think the, one of the points of my talk is it depends what you think better means, right? I mean, there is no better. Like, I was very surprised that most people thought the DNA collection was, shouldn't happen. Right, which is the law commission's view. And um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if an American audience felt exactly the opposite. Right? Certainly the US courts feel the opposite. And I think the difference there is, is, is cultural to some extent. I mean, it's also legal, but it's cultural because I think New Zealanders have a more highly developed sense of privacy um, and a protection of bodily integrity and, and sort of privacy rights. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that it, it sort of comes out that way. So, to me, the criteria of better or not better, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's all you pay your money, you take your choice. You balance the objective values of due process and crime control. I have to say that with respect to the bar glass scenario, I am inherently unattracted to the abandonment theory because it just strikes me as not correct. I mean, you're, you're not all thinking to yourself that you're self-consciously abandoning your DNA on a glass. You're just thinking you're having a drink, right? 
So, I mean, the idea that you're, you're acting in a way that signals to the world, I no longer have any privacy or proprietary interests in, in my DNA, strikes me as inherently wrong. Um, but the abandonment theory has been a very useful one for American police because it justifies all sorts of evidence collection without having to get search warrants or do anything. It's as if no law applies. They've applied the same theory to rubbish. When you put evidence in your rubbish bin, and why you would do this is beyond me, but if you put evidence in your rubbish bin of criminal activity and then just put it out on the street, um, American cops can just go look through your rubbish and get it. Why? Because you've abandoned your rubbish. You've just announced to the world, I don't care about this, you know, so just come get it. Do what you want with it, okay? And I'm, I don't like that theory, and that's why I think the Law Commission's probably right. You know, let's get, a, let's get a warrant to get this sort of things. But the Law Commission hasn't been clear what the scope and nature of the warrant is. So you can, you can think that you need a warrant to get indirect, non-consensual collection of DNA, but that doesn't settle the question of what types of mechanisms you can do to get it, like the bar glass scenario. You know, I don't know. Hello. Um, yeah, so in Wilson, are you not concerned that while, well, and then in pushing the sort of bogus cases through the district court, that while it's not... It was one bogus case. Oh, one bogus case. <laughs> while it might not meet the legal threshold for perjury, it's very analogous to it. Nah, not really, because the intent's not there. I mean, everybody knows it's a scam, right? I mean, I just, I just think the court was being a little precious about it. I mean, they've mounted operations in the states using courts that are just a thousand times more extensive than that, and, and the courts have never blinked an eye about it. I mean, just not blinked an eye about it. I mean, there's, there's a case in the states that they ran in Chicago against um, corrupt judges. The entire Cook County judiciary was taking bribes in Chicago from defense lawyers to throw cases. And they ran a sting operation for two years called Operation Greylord, uh, which involved hundreds of FBI agents getting fake arrests, posing as crims, you know, lawyers in on the scheme, court officers, the attorney general, the DA, everybody except the corrupt judges. Um, and they ran this for years in the courts, you know, dozens of cases, and they ended up prosecuting dozens of judges and court officers and other people and when the, all these defendants made the same claim in the U.S. courts as they did in Wilson, the U.S. courts just sort of laughed it off and said, you know, what are you guys talking about? You know, it didn't, nothing happened with the real people in court. They were all fine. It didn't affect them. And you guys were guilty. So what's your complaint? The processes we ran against you were only designed to ferret out the guilty. It didn't infringe on the rights of the innocent. That was, that was their reaction. You can imagine what a New Zealand court would have done with an Operation Greylord if, if they were worried about this. So look, I take your point, right? It's a legitimate debate, John, to be had. But I just think you have to ask yourself, you know, like how far do you want to let cops go or not? And do you sometimes have to, you know, pretend a little bit and use court processes to do so in order to make the kind of cases you want? Could you talk a little bit more about why you disagree with the abandonment theory? Um, I'm just thinking about privacy law. If someone took a photo of me in the street, um, I wouldn't be able to assert my right to privacy over that photograph. Yeah. Um, so if I was to, to do something with my DNA or leave some evidence in the bin, yeah. what's the difference? Well, I, I, I don't think people have an expectation of privacy in their image on a public street, right? I mean, if they did, all of those cameras in Newmarket and the motorways would be pretty problematic. Um, as might your photos on your driver's license. I mean, I don't think you have an expectation of privacy in your face. That, that's one of the most public things about you. But I, I think DNA is different. And the Law Commission thinks it's different too. And so I guess that's where I come down on that. Um, I also think that, again, and this is, this is a, you know, 
unique to New Zealand, the sense of maintenance of privacy and bodily integrity here, our privacy laws are a little more, more extensive than the United States, as you probably know. And there are also Tikanga principles involved. There are principles of, of people's mana involved when you take bodily samples from them in an indirect, surreptitious way. Um, and, and by the way, I just want to be clear about this. I'm not saying you can't do it. <laughs> I'm just saying that it ought to require some kind of authorization or legislation to make it happen. We have legislation, I don't know if you know this, but we have legislation that provides for the overt taking of DNA from suspects. We have the Criminal, criminal, criminal Bodily Samples Act. So we have procedures whereby police can go get a warrant to actually take blood or buccal sample, you know, tissue sample from somebody for DNA matching, but it's a judicial process with observance and rights and everything. So this is different. Um, and so I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying why not subject it to the same kind of process that the first one is subjected to. That's, that's my only point. Hi. I would just want to push back on that with the whole... If you're talking about bodily fluids, I am going to bring up rape cases, which are horrifically underreported and well-known that most of what goes to court does not get... You know, it's really hard to get a guilty trial. And if you yeah. say that you then need to get a search warrant for a DNA and it's down to a he said, she said, how, how, how is that any better than our current situation? Because, because the he said, she said scenario is once you get to trial and it's a question of evidential sufficiency of who the jury believes, the standards for a search warrant are different. They're just whether you have reasonable grounds to believe there would be evidence of a crime found in a certain place. And you don't even get to the he said, she said scenario until the police have charged somebody and they've got a targeted criminal suspect. So on the assumption that they've got a target or a suspect in mind, the question would be designing the evidential burden to get the warrant at an appropriate standard so that it's not too hard to get, but not too easy either, which is exactly what happens now. Um, I mean, let's say the evidence of that rape was in someone's home, right? Which it might be. You might have some other evidence. You still need a warrant for that. You still need a search warrant for that. But that warrant is based on basic, you know, what Americans call probable cause, what the Kiwis call reasonable grounds. It's not as high as beyond a reasonable doubt, and police get search warrants all the time. So, I, I mean, I take your point, and I agree with you. You should be able to get that evidence. Um, so the question is to be able to uh, set the procedure in a way that doesn't make it too hard to do, but also shows some protection for people's individual rights. Because, you know, criminal suspects have rights too. And that's the way all search warrants and all police investigation procedures work. Every law that permits the police to get evidence also limits their ability to do so. It does both. I just find what you're saying a bit irreconcilable. So on one hand, we've got the search warrant provisions, right? All the laws of the Evidence Act, which yeah. allow us to, the police basically jump through hoops in order to be able to lawfully search and seize material. Yeah. All these scenarios you talk about are effectively outside of the law, right? Yeah. And so how do you reconcile the fact that we have laws in place in order to protect our rights, which are under the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, which are set out in the Evidence Act, and the fact that the police can basically do what they want yep. as long as they get the evidence. I, I don't reconcile it. It's exactly why I'm calling for okay. the new targeted legislation to deal with it. I, I agree with you completely, Emma. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it, it, is, it is very odd to me. And in fact, the Supreme Court made the same point in Richmond. I mean, you actually need more process to do a simple search of someone's house yeah. than you do to mount a Mr. Big scenario for six or eight months, you know, or, or whatever. And it seems counterintuitive, so I agree with you completely. The way to reconcile it is by creating legislative process around these scenario operations. And in order to do that, you need to have a think about your legislation. You need to create something like the Search and Surveillance Act for undercover scenarios. 
And that's what I'm advocating for. That's what the Law Commission is advocating for now for DNA collection. And they've also basically advocated for it for these scenario operations. But we're just going to have to see where it goes from here. But I, I agree with you completely, and that's why I'm calling for that. All right, thank you very much, everybody. That's it. <laughs> thank you.